The following sermon was delivered on August 15, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial assistant Zachary Groff delivered this sermon entitled A Tale of Two Redeemers on Ruth 4, 1-12. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. At the end of Charles Dickens' best-known work of historical fiction, A Tale of Two Cities, published in 1859 but set in the French Revolution of the previous century, the hero, Sidney Carton, secretly trades places with the unjustly condemned Charles Darnay. And he says these noble and famous words before the guillotine. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. With those words, Carton secured a future for Darnay and his family. With the production of many adaptations of Dickens' novel and movies and stage and and other uh, references made to these words in popular culture, sympathetic readers admire Dickens' hero. They admire Carton as capturing something of the essence of virtue and self-sacrificial love. This morning, we're considering not historical fiction, but an historical account in which the words and deeds of Boaz of Bethlehem demonstrate virtue and self-sacrificial love in the redemption or buyback of a field and a widow, a field and a widow. The field once belonged to his kinsman, Elimelech, who abandoned it to live for a time outside of God's promised land in the pastures or fields of Moab. There, we're told in chapter 1, Elimelech died. His two sons married Moabite women and likewise died without returning to the promised land, leaving his widow, Elimelech's widow, Naomi, empty as she returned to Israel with one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess. In chapter 2, this Ruth ventures forth into an unfamiliar field to, uh, to gather uh, from that field leftover grain for Naomi and herself. And we are told that she happens to come into the field of a man named Boaz, who's a close relative of Elimelech. He notices her to be a hardworking woman devoted to her mother-in-law, and he honors her with hospitality and protection during the whole harvest. In chapter 3, Naomi sends Ruth to make a proposal to Boaz in the middle of the night to ask him to serve as a kinsman redeemer. He answers favorably, but there's a problem. There happens to be a closer relative who has more of a claim to Elimelech's field and Ruth's hand in marriage. Regardless, faithful Boaz promises in chapter 3 to secure redemption for Ruth one way or another. And chapter 4 provides us with the report of how he does so through a very formal, official encounter and legal exchange with the other potential redeemer. And so we have in chapter 4 not a tale of two cities, but a tale of two redeemers. And so what I seek to show you this morning is that the one true redeemer pursues, negotiates, and secures redemption. The one true redeemer pursues, negotiates, and secures redemption. 
We'll break down the passage into three parts as we work through it to get a profile of Boaz as the one true redeemer and then to consider him as a type or or precursor to the one redeemer of God's elect, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first part, verses 1 and 2, we see that the true redeemer pursues redemption. Then in the second part, verses 3 through 6, we see that the true redeemer negotiates redemption. And then finally, in the third part, verses 7 through 12, we see that in fulfillment of his promise, the true redeemer secures redemption. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me now. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold... The close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. In these two verses, Boaz launches his mission. And we see that the one true redeemer pursues redemption, as I've said. The divinely inspired narrator wants us to consider the setting, the situation, and then the action, what it is that Boaz does, his words and his deeds. First, note the setting in verse 1. Very simply, now Boaz went up to the gate. Boaz moves upward to fulfill his promise, his covenant with Ruth that he had made the previous night. And we don't want to read too much into this, but I think it is significant that the narrator tells us that he went up to the gate rather than he came to the gate or walked to the gate or went down to the gate. Upward movements in Scripture frequently signify good spiritual developments. There are a number of examples I can give from the life of Elijah and and from other passages, but just one example in 2 Samuel chapter 2, the beginning of that chapter, will suffice and I think serve our purposes best. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, we read this, Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up? To one of the cities of Judah. And the Lord said to him, Go up. So David said, Where shall I go up? See what's being emphasized here. And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came and there anointed David king over the house of Judah. David went up to Hebron and was anointed king over the house of Judah. The one who would deliver God's people out of the chaos of judges in partial fulfillment of God's covenant promise to David that he would set him up as a king and with an everlasting throne and house. Now, David's great-grandfather, Boaz, in our passage went up to the gate of Bethlehem, the city of David, and took his seat in the city council as a man with authority to fulfill his covenant promise to Ruth. And why in the gate? In our day and age, we don't have a single place um, where we go to conduct legal transactions. We have various kinds of courts of law for different types of contract making or conflict resolution. When you buy property, You might remember buying your house. You didn't go to the magisterial court or whatever, or city hall. You probably went to a lawyer's office and signed some papers, which then would have been filed at the appropriate court or office. Certainly, our city council or mayor's office do not handle every single economic transaction or contractual agreement that is made within their respective jurisdictions, county or city or whatever. 
But in Boaz's day, and this is my point, the city gate, that's where the elders, the members of the city council or senate, that's where they would meet to decide upon the important business of the townspeople. Recall from chapter 3, verse 11, that Boaz said to Ruth in the New American Standard, all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. All my people in the city. Literally, what he said was that the entire gate of my people or all my gate people know that you are a woman of excellence or virtue. Coming to the gate, Boaz is determined to prove that this is the case. He's going to argue Ruth's excellence in the gate, even as he negotiates and pursues and secures her redemption. Now consider the situation. We have the setting, now the situation as it's described in verse one. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. The narrative moves quickly from Boaz taking a seat in the gate to the surprising appearance of the close relative of whom Boaz spoke the previous night to Ruth. The word behold, it indicates that this is a remarkable development. I don't, there's no indication that Boaz planned this. This just happened. It's something like a chance encounter. Those of you who've been here for my previous sermons over the past few weeks, uh, have we seen anything like this before? Children, do you remember another chance encounter in the book of Ruth? In chapter 2, verse 3, what are we told? that Ruth set out to glean in the fields to gather leftovers from her neighbor's fields, that she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Literally, she just so happened to chance upon. Though two different words in Hebrew are used, we could translate them, she, uh, she chanced to chance upon. Well, what I said at that point certainly applies here as well with another happenstance situation. In biblical literature, there may be descriptions of chance encounters, but nothing is left to chance in God's providence. In the opening verse of chapter 4, we once again see evidence of God's sovereign purposes, his sovereignty working out in the situations of men, working behind the scenes to push forward the story, to bring Ruth and Boaz together, and ultimately to address Israel's great need for a king. And what about Boaz's words and actions in these first two verses of our passage? Setting, situation, what about the action? As Boaz sets out to fulfill his promise to Ruth from the previous chapter, he does not delay, he does not hesitate, and he does seem to command a great deal of authority and respect among his fellow townspeople in Bethlehem. Look back at the end of verse 1. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. It's, that word friend could be translated, turn aside, Mr. So-and-so, whoever you are. It's, it's, it's not really a name. <clears throat> and he turned aside and sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now, children, I want you to think about this in particular, boys and girls. Your parents would love nothing more than for you to imitate the behavior of Boaz's close relative and the elders of the city in these verses, wouldn't they? When mom or dad say, come here, because I doubt they say turn aside, you should do what? You should come here. When mom or dad say, sit down, 
perhaps for dinner or family worship or just to be quiet. What should you do? You should sit down. When mom or dad say, eat your vegetables, you should do what? You should eat those veggies with vigor and speed. Prompt obedience is a sign of great respect. And it's certainly in this passage, Boaz commands great respect as he constitutes the court, as he brings it together for deliberation here in Bethlehem's city gate. He's sitting as something of a king among his fellow men. Now, do you see anything of Christ, our Savior, in these verses, these first two opening verses, almost mundane details, but yet we can see the splendor of Christ. There is much to see. God the Son came down from highest heaven, humbling himself in the form of a man to seek and to save the lost. But then he ascended, he went up the hill to fulfill his mission as Redeemer. He went up with the cross to pay the penalty of our sin in his death. And he came up in the resurrection for our justification, we're told in Romans chapter 4. Boaz went up to the gate to redeem Ruth. David went up to Hebron to be anointed king of Judah. Christ went up on the cross to redeem us from the guilt and curse of sin. He went up from the grave to usher us into new life. Then he went up to heaven to be crowned as king of all creation. And as Christ went about his divine mission, no encounter was by chance or happenstance. His father made all the appointments. He arranged for every conversation, every teaching moment, every miracle, and every advance of his church from the acts forward. When Jesus Christ spoke, he spoke as one having authority, not as the scribes or the Pharisees. He spoke and men obeyed, whether they wanted to or not. They fell down before him. They left their nets and followed him. You should see much of Christ in Boaz in just these two little verses. And you should admire what you see. Isn't it glorious? In the next section, in verses 3 through 6, more causes for admiration begin to emerge as the one true redeemer who pursues redemption now negotiates redemption. Look at these verses with me, starting at verse 3. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance." The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. What is the one key word of these verses? Hint, it's the one that's repeated over and over again. Redeem. Redeem. If you were here last week, you'll remember that I said that the essential idea in redeeming something is to purchase it, to buy it. In this case, to buy it back. Boaz opens the negotiations then with the prospective redemption of the parcel of land, that section of the field that Elimelech abandoned when he went into the field of Moab in search of food in chapter 1. 
Then Boaz closes by linking the redemption that, um, of that land to Ruth the Moabitess and the redemption of her. These are two separate issues. They're distinct, but Boaz brings them together to secure redemption for Ruth. There are many details in this passage. It's very foreign to us. We don't do business like this anymore. But three details are most important for understanding how it is that Boaz negotiates redemption of both Elimelech's land and Ruth. First, notice how Boaz opens the discussion. In our English text, he opens with Naomi, who has come back from the land or field of Moab. However, the Hebrew word order puts the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech right up front. Boaz emphasizes in doing that, that feature of the negotiation that will be most attractive to the other potential redeemer. He starts with the land. The man will want the land. Boaz knows that, so he starts with it. But he also makes a point of describing Naomi as having returned from Moab. The nameless kinsman would start to get excited. He'd get excited about the prospect of acquiring some land for himself and his heirs from an old widow without any children. Because his family then would not have to return that land to anyone else during the year of Jubilee, which is described in Leviticus 25, 28. We really don't have time to go into all the details about that, but suffice it to say, Boaz opens with the most attractive part of the bargain, the most attractive part of uh, this prospect of redeeming uh, Naomi from her plight, the acquisition of land which will not need to be returned according to Israelite law. Boaz's second move then is to lay out the land uh, acquisition opportunity in obvious and even directive language. He says, so I thought to inform you, saying, but um, uh, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. Like buy it in front of them, in their presence. Make it official. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, literally, if you will not redeem it, And tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. So what's a man's response there to this obvious and directive language? In his mind, Boaz has just put before him an offer he simply cannot refuse. And he jumps on the opportunity. He says, I will redeem it. And what he does not realize, though, is that the concept of redemption in our narrative has to this point, before chapter 4, been primarily related to Ruth and Naomi, and especially Ruth. In chapter 3, remember, Boaz promised to secure redemption for Ruth, not for the field. So much so that in the Hebrew, the word redeem, I will redeem, was always attached to the pronoun in the second person feminine singular pronoun, you. I will redeem you, redeem you, redeem you, in reference to Ruth. In our narrative, redemption is tied to Ruth before it's ever tied to the land. It's at this point that Boaz makes a surprising third move, and that catches the other man off guard. Look at verse 5 with me. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his 
inheritance. Consider what Boaz has done in verses 3 through 5. He's reminded the people that Naomi had been in Moab, lost her husband Elimelech, and needs someone to redeem his land under the provisions of Leviticus chapter 25, verses 25 to 28. Then he has established himself as the next redeemer standing in line if this anonymous relative is not interested. And now he's connected the redemption purchase of the land to the redemption marriage to a Moabite woman, suspecting that the other potential redeemer will at that point back down, opening up the way for himself to step in as redeemer. This is exactly what happens in verse 6. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize or destroy my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Boaz brings together two distinct and, and quite frankly, very difficult to apply statutes in the law of Israel from Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25. Two separate issues, he brings them together to negotiate Ruth's redemption. Why does he go to all this trouble? Why does Boaz do this? What is it about him that makes him the one true redeemer in our passage and disqualifies the other man, the man with no name, Mr. So-and-so? Boaz possesses a quality that the other man simply does not possess. As we've seen again and again in the foregoing chapters, chapters two and three, Boaz is a man of great and pious virtue and excellence. He is one of a kind in the Israel of the judges. This other man just does not have the same stuff. When you listen to a great song written by a virtuoso musician or composer or an artist or band that you really like, and then you hear that song performed by somebody else who just isn't that good, what's the idea that comes to mind? That's a great song, but this performer just does not have the same stuff as the original. Even if his performance is just okay, passable, you might think, man, that really didn't do that song any justice. That guy doesn't have the same stuff. Boaz is here a virtuoso, not by merit of any musical talent, but by merit of his virtue, which he inspires, uh, or which inspires his own self-sacrificial love for the family of Elimelech and for virtuous Ruth in particular. The other relative simply doesn't have it. We see it in this negotiation, and we see it in the simple fact that Boaz has a name, and the other man does not. We could say it this way, Boaz is immortalized in our passage, and the other man is consigned to the dustbin of history. But there's a name above every name under heaven, and that is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only name by which sinners are redeemed. Just as there is no other redeemer to negotiate redemption for Ruth according to the law of God in our passage, so there is no other redeemer to intercede for us before the throne of God 
above in Jesus Christ. It is Christ alone who fulfilled the law perfectly, perfectly applying its every requirement at every point of his life for our sakes, that his heavenly father would have a kingdom of priests then to give him praise that he himself would win for himself a bride spotless and without blame at the wedding supper of the lamb. Yes, we are called to follow him, to imitate him in his perfect love, in his dealings. We are to imitate him in our own dealings, one with another, with family members, friends, neighbors, and even our enemies. But the point here is that we are to see his goodness and to give him praise, resting on his merits to fulfill all the requirements of the law, which we ourselves cannot keep on our own power because there is only one redeemer, one true redeemer. By grace, Christ has negotiated our redemption with mastery and skill, applying God's law and working within it, fulfilling all its requirements. What a glorious savior. In the final portion of our text this morning, then we see that the one true redeemer who pursues and negotiates redemption now secures the same. Look at verses 7 through 12 with me. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Mahlon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mahlon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. In securing redemption, Boaz follows the customs of his people. He makes clear his purpose in doing so. And then he receives a blessing from the people who are serving as witnesses to the whole transaction. Though the nation of Israel in the time of the judges had abandoned much of the past in its departure from true worship and devotion to God. Yet Boaz enforces classic Israelite practice in verses seven and eight to secure the redemption of Ruth. The point there being that he has left nothing undone. And the other redeemer then fades away after saying to Boaz, buy it for yourself. Poof, he's gone from the narrative. The shoe is removed as a biblical sign confirming the finalization of the transaction. It's almost like a receipt and the securing of redemption for Elimelech's family holdings and Mathlon's widow. In verses 9 and 10, Boaz then declares plainly his purpose in doing what he has done. He has redeemed everything that belonged to Elimelech, Mathlon, and Kilion. Nothing is left out. 
His redemption is total and unconditional, not partial or or conditional or contingent. Boaz has accomplished redemption, secured it for Ruth and for the family of Elimelech. The purposeful result of this deed of generosity is to perpetuate Elimelech's family name, not to make Boaz more wealthy in the acquisition of land, but to ensure that life would not be snuffed out in that generation of Elimelech's family. That's Boaz's purpose. He is committed not only to managing that land and passing it on to his descendants, but in bringing forth descendants for Elimelech and Mathlon from Ruth. In securing redemption for Ruth then, Boaz secures new life for the family of Elimelech, he whose name is my God is king. In verses 11 and 12, the people respond with a blessing that anticipates the national significance of this great deed done in the gates of little Bethlehem. In referencing Rachel and Leah, the people Hearken back to the founding of the nation of Israel recounted in Genesis chapters 29 and 30. Then in referencing Perez, Tamar, and Judah, the people hone in on, or home in on specifically drawing upon their own tribal history, which in Genesis 49.10 has a promise of royal power and authority. The scepter will never depart from Judah. In other words, a king will come from this tribe. By linking Boaz's deed to the founding of Israel and to the early history of Judah, the people of Bethlehem then set up Boaz as a great patriarch of a new chapter in the history of Israel. What do our praises of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, testify about him? He who is so much greater than Boaz. What do you confess about Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, when we gather together and worship, or even on your own, when you're in the Word and you're praying and ascribing glory and praise to Him, or speaking of Him with your neighbors and with your family members and friends? Do you give Jesus Christ the honor as uh, the founder and redeemer of, of sinners, the Savior above all? Indeed, Christ has secured a total redemption for the people of God, for you and for me. His is not a halfway redemption, opening up an opportunity for us to come in. His is a full redemption, bringing us in. He's left no one out of whom he has purposed to save. Indeed, he has left no requirement undone. Do you believe this to be true? Then indeed he has given you new life, eternal life born of his spirit. The calling to those who hear this gospel, this good news about redemption in Christ, is to recognize him and him alone as the redeemer of mankind. To receive Jesus Christ as personal redeemer of you, each of you, where no other prospects exist and to rest upon him alone for salvation. Forsaking your own schemes, your own devices, and even your own good works, resting upon his alone. Now, the great temptation each of us face is the temptation to make ourselves the hero of our stories, isn't it? 
We want to be like Dickens' Sidney Carton, doing a far, far better thing that will be celebrated and admired by millions. And it's not altogether evil to desire to do good. Certainly, Sidney Carton is a hero laying down his life for Mr. Darnay and his family. But it is altogether worthless and vainglorious to seek to be the hero, even to do good, when separated from dependence upon God through the person and work of Christ, our Redeemer. That's truly the notable thing about Boaz is perhaps he agonized all night about how he was going to do this. And what does he do? He doesn't scheme and come up with something on his own, but he goes back to the word of God and seeks to apply it rightly in dependence upon and submission upon God. And that dependence is rewarded when, boom, he sits down and the guy shows up and everything falls into place. You've seen this morning from Ruth 4, 1 through 12, that the one true redeemer does what? Purposes or pursues, negotiates, and secures redemption. He pursues, negotiates, and secures redemption. Nobody else can do this. Among all the men mentioned in the book of Ruth, think about all the names we have. Elimelech, Kilion, Mahlon. Uh, we have the, the anonymous guy in the field in chapter 2. We have this, uh, this kinsman redeemer who remains anonymous to us. You have all these other elders there in the city. Among all of them, Boaz alone in our narrative is described as a man of virtue, a man of excellence, a valiant man of valor, and especially in contrast to this other redeemer in this tale of two redeemers. Boaz is shown to be a man of special quality, uniquely suited to redeem. That other redeemer did nothing illegal. According to the letter of the law, he actually did nothing wrong. But he did nothing selfless or self-sacrificing. He did nothing lovely or good. But Boaz, he on the other hand, he did. And our Lord, Jesus Christ, is a man of special quality, uniquely suited to redeem filled with the love of God, impelled by it to save sinners. And according to the genealogy found in the opening verses of the Gospel of Matthew, which in a couple of months, I guess, will begin a series uh, through Matthew, Jesus Christ is the 30th in line of descent from Boaz, something like that, 29th or 30th, depending upon how you're counting generations. And what we have been given in this text about the great deeds of Jesus' noble ancestor is a picture of the quality of the one true Redeemer that he alone pursues, negotiates, and secures redemption for his people because he alone is qualified and he alone loves them to do it. He alone brings new life, a new community, and eternal salvation to all those who call upon his name in faith. He alone has laid down his life for us with any meaning or ability to save. Doesn't that strike you with wonder and awe? Please stand for prayer. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.